Surely no one would disagree when I say that we are living in difficult times. But from one standpoint, that's nothing new. Because ever since Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, there have been difficulties of some sort that people have encountered. The consequences of sin has brought great sorrow, conflicts throughout the ages. There have been wars and rumors of wars. Trace the history of God's people through the Old Testament. You see that they were always facing some kind of a great challenge all the way from slavery in Egypt to the challenges they faced when they came into the promised land and were charged with the responsibility of moving forward with God's power to drive out the heathen. Each one of us can look back over our own lifetime and think about periods of war and conflict the world over and certainly we see a great many around us and we'll begin to enumerate some of those. My subject is courage in difficult times. Now read from the book of Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 18. Let us rise up and build so they strengthen their hands for this good work. Nehemiah was a cupbearer in the court of King Artaxerxes. That might not sound like a prominent position, but in fact it was. He was more than just a butler that might bring the king his beverage when he desired it. He was a man in whom the king put great trust. The cupbearer was responsible not just to bring him his beverage, but to take the first sip of it so that if there was a plot against the king and somebody desired to take his life, the cupbearer taking the first sip would be the man that died. Cupbearer died and long lived the king. Same thing was true of any food that the king was to eat. And because of this close association, the cupbearer in many cases became a real advisor to the king. There was discussion and conversation between them so that he held a prominent role. Now while in that position, he gets word about the devastation back in Jerusalem, the city that he loved, a city that's described in the Psalms as being beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth. But at that point, it wasn't very beautiful. The walls were broken down. The people were very discouraged. And when Nehemiah gets that word, he is deeply burdened about the matter. So first of all, we want to think about the difficulties faced. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 3, And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captive there in the province are in great affliction and great reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, the gates thereof burned with fire. So this is a dark period in Israel's history and something that is causing great heaviness of heart to Nehemiah who was desirous of seeing God's people prosper. Think about some of the things that we face in our culture today. People are angry. If you don't believe that, just encounter somebody on the highway that's a little upset with the speed you're driving or your hesitation at the red light when it changes to move as rapidly as they want you to and you soon find out there's a lot of angry people out there. If you listen to the newscasters or the talk show hosts, you'll find in the case of many of them, they're angry angry about almost anything that you might bring up. Nothing quite suits them. People are constantly critical of uh, other people and other people's points of view and critical about whatever's happening in the government. And certainly you can see 
a shift in what's been taking place in the culture in which we live when you see how sex and violence is promoted on TV and the movies and even in video games. And while I hesitate to refer to it as music, it goes under that title, but much of what is called music today also depicts and reveals the anger that possesses so many people. At various times when I have been ministering to young people who are struggling with a variety of problems, I'd say, well, I'd like to know what kind of music you listen to. And they would bring me in a sample. I said, I couldn't understand a word they said. Could you get me a printout so I could read the words? And then it got worse. I thought, no wonder people are angry and upset when they listen to that kind of stuff all day long. So you can see it in the music. Certainly see some changes that we could not possibly have anticipated some years ago. The whole concept of what constitutes a biblical God-honoring marriage coming under such attack so that if you take a stand to believe what the Bible teaches about marriage being one man to one woman, you'll be accused of using hate speech and that you are narrow-minded and unreasonable. So indeed the changes are significant. And then in the public school system, humanistic teaching designed to turn young people away from the faith that they had been exposed to in their home. In fact, I read after one professor who said, I'm somewhat amused when I see the parents drive up to the campus, have their hugs and goodbyes, and I'm thinking... When I turn this young person back to you in four years, they will not be the same. It's my goal to shake their faith and to bring them into the thinking that is popular in our times. In fact, I talked to one professor who was told he must go to a seminar to prepare him for the teaching that was coming up that year. And the one conducting the seminar said, we want you to understand that your main goal is not to teach the subject to which you're assigned. That's secondary. Your main goal is to shake their faith and bring them into the thinking that is prominent and prevalent in our times. When we see such dramatic changes around us, we surely must say, The times are difficult in many ways. Not only are there changes in the culture, the ungodly world around us, but in the religious community. Many churches are declining significantly. I talked to a doctor the other day who was about 70 years old, and he said, I'm one of the youngest people in my church. He said some years ago we had a thriving congregation. They have a beautiful building. I know where it's located. He said just little by little we've continued to go down. And as I began to ask various questions to find out what might be at the basis of it, he said, well, we believe that Jesus was a wonderful man, a great example. We believe that he was a good teacher. I said, based on some other things that had already been a part of that conversation, I said, well, since you believe he's a good teacher, you obviously believe what he taught. And Jesus taught, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and he that cometh unto the Father must come by me. He said, well, we have to consider that there's probably been some words like that that were added later, that Jesus didn't actually say that. I said, well, if you're going to believe that God who created heaven and earth is capable of providing a book that we can rely upon, then you're going to have to believe what's said here about Jesus. And if Jesus did not speak the truth, you can't say he was a good man. He wasn't a good teacher. You can't be relying on that. I thought, no wonder the church has declined when there's been a departure. And I know what the church one time believed. They turned away from it. 
with sadness. I think back to some churches that I've preached in in years gone by when the building was filled. And today the doors are closed. There's a reason for some of these things. Southern Baptist Convention had their annual meeting recently and reported the 11th consecutive year of decline. Over the past 10 years, they have lost 1.3 million in their members. And baptisms have been down 25%. Pastor of one mega church said, I don't ever mention the word sin because that's too negative. Now, obviously, you cannot preach the gospel without mentioning sin. The reason men need a Savior is because they are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it's because we are justly condemned as sinners, violators of the law of God, rebels by nature, we need a Savior and are incapable of saving ourselves. Another well-known pastor made this statement. Quit asking what does the Bible say and just ask what did Jesus say. Now that might slip in not so immediately recognized as error as the first statement, but it's error nevertheless. To say we're not going to respect the entirety of the Bible we're going to just take what Jesus said is to overlook the fact that Jesus himself condoned the Old Testament scriptures because he quoted them and especially in the time that he was tempted by Satan he quoted scripture in order to overcome those temptations so we believe that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable and these things in Old Testament times are written for our learning and admonition there are doctrinal lessons, prophetic lessons, practical lessons that we can learn from the Old Testament. So we must take all of Scripture, knowing that it is given us by God. But when we see these statements made by men with great followings and see the changes taking place in many areas, we certainly recognize that we live in challenging times. And then what about your own personal challenges? The walls of Jerusalem were broken down. Are there some walls that should be intact around your life that have been broken down? How is your life different from that of other people? If somebody observed you on a day-to-day basis, the way you spend your time, the places you go, the things you read, the things you look at on television... Would they say there's any difference in you and your next-door neighbor who doesn't even profess to be a believer? You see, little by little, one stone can be loosened and knocked out of place, and finally the wall has been broken down completely. Are you guilty of just trying to fit in? You don't want to be considered a religious fanatic. You want to fit in. You want other people to like you and not be critical of you. So the wall may be broken down. Now, as Nehemiah then felt this great burden to go back to Jerusalem and repair the walls, when he gets there, he immediately faces criticism. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, that is, heard that they were going to rebuild the wall. They laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? They're laughing at him. How absurd. How do you think you're going to possibly be able to rebuild the walls in this city? The condition is just beyond repair. There's no, no way you're going to be able to get this done. And then they bring up this subject. Are you going to rebel against the king? Well, Nehemiah had already addressed that issue. He walked into the king's presence one day, and the king immediately observed that his countenance was fallen. And he's inquiring, what troubles you? Well, obviously, if the cupbearer looks unhappy, the king has reason to be concerned. 
because the cupbearer is in a position to know something about any kind of an uprising that might be in process, know something about the enemies that might be purposing to attack the king. So the king obviously wants to know. And the interesting thing to observe in that particular instance and throughout all of the ministry of Nehemiah, before he did anything, he prayed. So before he responded to the king, he prayed. What a difference it would make if we all did that all the time. How many times have you forged ahead? You saw a particular problem and you had your perceived solution and you undertook it but you didn't pray. And after a while, you'd made things worse rather than better. Nehemiah prayed. And so he told the king what was on his heart. I want to go back to Jerusalem and build the walls. And the king was agreeable. Obviously God was in the matter. Just looking at it strictly from the human point of view, it would not have been unreasonable to think the king says, no way. You're you're a man upon whom I depend on a daily basis. I'm I'm not going to allow you to go. But the king was agreeable because obviously God had touched his heart and made him willing. So since he was willing for him to go, Nehemiah not only believed in prayer, he believed in planning. Now, sometimes people are real big on planning and they leave prayer out. Sometimes they're big on prayer and they leave planning out. There's a place for both of them. So when he had prayed and he gets permission to go, he says, by the way, it's come to my mind that when I get over there and start rebuilding the walls, somebody might say that I'm creating an uprising against the king. Would you mind just signing a letter that I have your approval to do this work? The king said, yeah, I'll do that. And so, you know, one, one time to get a good positive answer is after you've just gotten a good positive answer. So since the king responded favorably, he says, by the way, another thing, I'm going to need some timber out of which to build the gates. When we get the walls up, we've got to have the gates. We're going to need some timber. King, would you give me permission to cut the timber out of your forest? And the king said, well, yeah, I'll do that. So he signs the document. So things are going well. But just as Nehemiah might have anticipated, he gets over here and the critics are saying, it looks like you are trying to rebel against the king. And then in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 3, Tobiah said, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Now, talk about ridicule. Can you imagine working out here in the hot sun building the wall, putting one stone in place after the other, taking the trial, spreading the martyr, and you're perspiring and you're just putting forth your best effort and somebody comes up and says, wow, look at that thing. If a fox ran into it, he'd knock it down. Now, if if you were already kind of weary and discouraged, you'd say, I've had it. I'm, I'm going home. I don't have to put up with that. But, you see, they continued the work. What about your experience? Are you ever ridiculed by some critic that makes what you're trying to do in God's name challenging and difficult? You ever had conversation with somebody that says, well, you're just, you're the most narrow-minded person I ever talked to. I don't know how you can believe that. Hear what you believe about the sovereignty of God, about the doctrine of predestination. Say, oh, my, 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 I, I, I couldn't tolerate that. My, what, whatever possessed you to believe such a thing? They can be extremely critical. So, in spite of the criticism that Nehemiah and the people endured, they continued in the work. They didn't let criticism and ridicule cause them to give up. Now, the next thing that was encountered was a complaint. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 10. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build the wall. In other words, we're tired. We're worn out. The strength of the bearers of burden is decayed. There's much rubbish. Now, the rubbish was piled up to such a degree that when Nehemiah made his initial trip in there to inspect it, he wanted to make his way down past a couple of the gates and get where he could see it very well, and he couldn't even get his horse in there because there was so much rubbish. So when they're saying there's much rubbish, they weren't exaggerating, it was just that way. Now, from a practical standpoint, 
Suppose any of us would have to admit that we have a little rubbish about our house. You ever had one of those times and all of a sudden you said, we've been putting off this cleanup project for a long time and we're going to clean up. We're going to clean out all the closets. We're going to clean out the basement. We're going to clean out the garage. We're going to get rid of everything we don't need. And then usually the husband and wife have differing views on this. So one of them says, we're going to pitch it all out. And the other one says, oh no, we might use that someday. Let's hang on to this, hang on to that. Before you know it, you put most of the stuff back in place. You haven't thrown any of it away. But it's kind of startling to find out how much rubbish you can accumulate. Things that aren't doing you any good or anybody else any good. Well, this rubbish was piled up high in Jerusalem. And they were complaining it works too hard. You ever get to that place when it comes to the service of God? Say, I'm I'm just tired. I'm I'm tired. I've, I've been trying to fill my place for a long time. And yes, I've uh, had to endure some of the criticisms that uh, these, these people suffer. You know, if you try to do anything that's to God's glory, you try to commit yourself to serving him, somebody's not going to like the way you did it. Somebody's not going to like what you did or the way you did it. You're going to be criticized. And you can get tired of criticism. Or you can get tired once in a while. Somebody says, well, you know, it looks like I'm the only one around this church that does so-and-so. I'm I'm the one that um, does the cleaning or I'm the one that has to clean up the dirty dishes after we eat. Everybody brings in good food but I'm left to clean up the kitchen. You know, you can have all kinds of complaints come up. So when somebody comes to me and says, I I, I just feel like quitting. I said, I think you should. And uh, look at me with a startled look. You really think I should? I said, yeah. If it's gotten to the point that, that you don't enjoy doing it to the glory of God, then quit. But you see, there are a lot of things that can weight us down. Just the day-to-day burdens of life, some of the various obstacles that we face, the struggles that come our way, we can be discouraged. We can say there's just too much rubbish trying to deal with family issues, relationships, even church issues. Every once in a while, churches have little problems here and there, and some people are startled by that. They had the idea that when I joined the church, I thought I was coming to a city of refuge and it was just going to be nothing but peace and tranquility. Well, the problem is churches are made up of people, and people are problems. You may think about several people that are a problem to you, but you're probably a problem to some of them because there are different opinions. There are different ways of looking at things, and it's easy for feelings to get hurt, so you can be discouraged with all kinds of challenges and issues that come your way. So the complaint was, it's just too hard. Well, I concede that any work we try to do in the Lord's name, and we're to do whatever we do, we're to do all of the glory of God. So whether it's the daily responsibility of a father going out in the workplace and providing for his family, or if the mother is staying home caring for the children, or if it's just the responsibility of dealing with the children and bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or the responsibility of getting along with your neighbor, or wherever it might be, it's easy to become discouraged and to feel that there is too much rubbish. Well, seeing something of the difficulties face, let's consider the path to success. We referred already to the fact that Nehemiah prayed before he approached the king specifically. But let's look back at that. Chapter 1, <clears throat> chapter one of the book of Nehemiah and verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words, that is the words concerning the devastation that there was down in Jerusalem. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So he didn't just throw up his hands in despair and say, this is terrible news, I just, I, just, I just give up. No, he fasted, he prayed, he prayed before the God of heaven. 
And in verse 11, he says, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. And I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. So here are the specific prayers that is praying. Lord, I need thy help, I need thy intervention, I need thy blessing. And that's the first step. If we're going to be on the path to overcoming the discouragements, the criticisms, the influence of the culture around us, the changing of circumstances in the country in which we live, first thing that's in order is prayer. We have to turn to God and seek Him. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says that we must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Now, if you're going to the Lord with your burden, you're asking for His guidance and for His help and for His blessing, but you're getting a little impatient and you've got plan B over here to the side. You can't expect God's going to hear you. I talked to somebody one time in a counseling situation where that very issue came up. The person says, well, I'm, I'm earnestly praying, but you know, I've been praying for a good while and nothing's happened. And, and, and I'll finally get to the place I just have to do something. So they told me about plan B, and plan B wasn't scriptural or biblical in any sense of the word. So I'm going to call on God to help, but if he doesn't help within my time frame and with a solution that is satisfactory to me, then I'm going to go another direction. You see, that misses the mark. When he says, you must believe that he is, and you must believe he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So when you're seeking him, when you're praying, you must pray with expectation. Psalm 86 verse 10 says, open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. This is, I'm expecting something. God says, when you're expecting it, when you're seeking my face, when you're praying, I will fill it. But if you're half-hearted about it, and say, I, I, I don't know whether the Lord's going to resolve this thing or not. I don't, I don't know whether I'm going to ever give an answer. You get an answer from him. You're not doing what he says needs to be done. So, first thing is prayer. The second is trusting God. And of course, if you're praying right, you're going to be trusting God even as you pray. But chapter 2, verse 20, Then answered I them and said unto them, This is what he's speaking back to the critics. The God of heaven will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. No matter what you've said, no matter how you've tried to discourage us, we will arise and build because God will prosper us. See the boldness they had when they trusted in God? Now you lean on the arm of the flesh and you're going to become very weak and unable to stand against any kind of opposition. But if your trust is in the living God, you can have boldness. I'm not talking about being brash. I'm not talking about being harsh or unkind. I'm talking about being bold because of the blessing of the Holy Spirit of God. So they were trusting God. Then the next thing it says, they had a mind to work. Chapter 4, verse 6. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together under the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. What a wonderful thing when you find a church where the people have a mind to work. People get to the place that they're indifferent, lost their first love, try to shirk their duties. Sad consequences. The walls come down. The place is full of rubbish. But when the people have a mind to work, willing to do whatever can be done to the glory of God, it may be a difficult task. I can see that I'm not strong enough to accomplish it, but I'm going to go to the promises the Apostle Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him to give me the strength, to give me the, the uh, determination. It's got to be more than just sheer willpower. It's got to be trust in the living God. I was talking to a lady the other day who was she's struggling with a drug problem. She'd been a nurse. She said, I enjoyed my work. But I had to have surgery. The doctor gave me pain pills. Before I knew it, 
I was back having the prescription refilled. I had it refilled again. Finally, I was taking so many pain pills I couldn't function, and I was fired. And I lost my license. And she said, just the things you said in your sermon made me feel I could come and talk to you about that subject. I said, I'm glad you came. And I want to tell you that there is hope in the living God for you to be able to totally overcome that temptation and that addiction and that you can, by God's grace, get your license back. She said, yeah, I guess I've just got to have more willpower. I said, no, obviously you don't have enough willpower. That's why you've already failed. We're not talking about willpower. We're talking about that power that comes by complete trust in God. That we have to admit, I'm weak, I don't have the strength, I don't have the ability, but I'm trusting God to see me through. That makes all the difference in the world. So the people were trusting in God, and because of that, they had boldness to stand against their critics. And then it says, they had a mind to work, so they persevered. They were committed in the matter. No matter matter what discouragement, no matter what opposition, they continued the work a mind to work. Then it further says that every man was in his place, chapter 4, verse 15, and it came to pass when our enemies heard it that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught. Now the counsel is talking about these critics first tried ridicule. When that didn't work, they had a secret meeting and said, we're going to put them to death. So the plot is laid that they're going to destroy and kill these people that are working to rebuild the wall. But through the providence of God, their scheme got out of them. And now it says, our enemies heard that this was known to us, that we had found out their plan, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall, everyone unto his work. So once again, they just go back to the task at hand. We went to our place, every man in his place. In fact, it talks about families being in specific places in the building on the wall. And that there was a time that they had to be on guard. And so they had the trial in one hand to build and the sword in the other hand to be prepared to meet the enemy when the enemy came. And there's a place for that in the service of God today. We need to be builders, builders on the wall, but we need also to use the sword of the Spirit to fight off our spiritual enemies. That when there is an attempt to turn us away from the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to turn us away from the basic foundational truths of God's Word, that we're going to use that sword of the Spirit to stand firm. And then these people are determined... And you can rest assured that our enemies are going to be determined. They're not going to back off easily. They're not going to say, well, these, these, these people are finding out our schemes and they're resisting our ridicule and that consequently they'll just give up. No, here comes another attempt. Chapter 6, verse 2. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. Nehemiah had insight and knew that they were up to no good. They say, we want you to come over here and converse with us. That seems a reasonable thing. Why wouldn't you come talk to us? Come out here in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. And I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? So my answer to you is, oh no, I'm not coming to oh no. I'm staying on the job. The job is an important job and I'm going to continue in it, not allowing our ourselves to be distracted you ever find some things that tend to distract you you can be distracted by the world itself by its many temptations you can be distracted by criticism you can be distracted by gossip 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 is a terrible thing i know i talked to a lady one time and said well as long as you're telling the truth it's not gossip is it oh i said yes Uh, it's vicious gossip when you're trying to tear somebody down Your whole purpose is to destroy them. There's one thing to be done. If a brother's overtaken in a fault, either the spirits will go to such a one, restore him in the spirit of meekness. You don't call everybody up and say, let me tell you what so-and-so did. No, gossip is a sin. So you can be distracted by gossip, either, either being the perpetrator or the one who is hearing it. 
And these people were not going to allow themselves to be distracted. So then chapter 6 verse 15 says, So the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month in 50 and 2 days. And it came to pass that when our enemies heard thereof and all the heathen were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought by our God. So the wall was completed in record time, 52 days, in spite of all of the opposition, the criticism, the ridicule, the plots, the schemes, they finished the wall, and now the enemies had had to take note of the fact that it was because God had blessed us. And is that not what we desire in our church, that we conduct ourselves in such a way that we walk by faith, trusting him, when we see that which would be impossible with man come to pass, we want not only the members of our church, but others that might observe it to say, this had to be the work of God. This didn't happen because of some wise plan and scheme that was instigated by men. This was the result of God's blessing. And then they gave thanks. After the wall was built, Nehemiah said, we're going to divide into two companies. I want one to start over here on this side. One to start over here. We're going to march on top of the wall, wide wall, so there's plenty of room for him to get up there and march. We're going to thank God. They gave thanks to him. They praised God. And verse 42 of chapter 12 says, And the singers sang loud. Now, I have seen occasion where somebody in a congregation sang loud because they wanted to be heard above everybody else, and that's not what it's talking about. Not talking about trying to outdo each other, but it means the whole group of them sang loud. They sang enthusiastically. They sang in such a way that they rejoiced in what they were doing, and other people could hear it from a distance. When you come to God's house, you ought to want to participate in the singing. I miss it because... As I've gotten older, my voice won't hold up to sing and preach both. The doctor told me one day, you've got to make up your mind. You can't do both of them, do one or the other. So most of the time, I can't sing because if I'm going to preach. But I encourage you to sing. You know, that, that wasn't something that somebody just made up some years ago and said, maybe we ought to add singing. No, it, it's something that we're enjoined to do in God's Word. Sing, making melody in your hearts unto the Lord. Singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. What a difference when a congregation enthusiastically sings the praises of God. So they sang loud. And it says, also that day they offered great sacrifices. Now we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore as they did in that time, but there's a sacrifice that we can offer. The book of Hebrews tells us that the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of the lips, praise unto God, is a sacrifice that we ought to be continually making. You know, it can get to the place that you're frustrated with the changing circumstances around us in the world, frustrated with your own circumstances in life, discouraged for a variety of reasons, and you can become a chronic complainer. I remember one old sister I was acquainted with years ago, I learned after about the second time, don't ever ask her how she is because she will tell you, and it's going to take quite a time to hear it all. Uh, don't don't become recognized as a complainer. Be one who gives thanks to God, no matter what the trials and the burdens might be, to give him thanks for his abundant mercies. And verse 43 also says, And they rejoice, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. As they sang, as they praised God, as they rejoiced, the joy was heard at a great distance. Oh, that that might be the case among God's people today. That in spite of all of the challenges, in spite of all of the troubles and afflictions that might be encountered, that there would be genuine joy in our hearts. And as we sing aloud and praise Him and give our testimony to others, that's what great things God has done for us. The joy of Jerusalem would be heard at a distance. I was made to think the other day about how years ago when I'd be traveling around the country and preaching and go to stay at somebody's house, shortly after breakfast, several people would start gathering in 
and they'd sit around and want to talk about the Bible and ask questions. Right on through the morning, many times the lady of the house had already invited them to stay for lunch. There'd be 20, 25 people come in to talk. And one of the things they did, somebody would speak up and say, well, brother so-and-so, tell us your experience. I don't know that I've ever heard it. Or they'd say to sister so-and-so, what, what about your experience of grace? Tell us how God worked in your heart. And those were some beautiful, wonderful seasons of fellowship. How many times have you shared with your own children your experience of grace to tell them? Here's where I was in my fallen nature. I had no interest in the things of God, and God touched my heart and go through the details of how he had blessed you. And there may be others to whom you can share that experience. You say, oh, nobody, nobody wants to hear that. Well, you're not going to find out if you don't try. You have to make the effort. Years ago, I, I, I used to be rather timid to bring up the subject of salvation to somebody that I was not acquainted with. I kind of had been versed in the idea that if you want to really be an effective witness to somebody, you've got to build a relationship with them first. And that's the ideal way. But in the last few years, I found myself in a situation many times when I realized I was in the presence of somebody I'd probably never see again in my life. And I want to talk to them about the Lord. So I found one effective way to get the conversation going. What would you to say, suppose you died today, you came into the presence of God, on what basis would you think you might be allowed to live in it? That gets down to the nitty-gritty in a hurry. <laughs> and about 95% of them say, well, I, I think I'm a pretty good person. And it doesn't make any difference how far down the line they are. I, I talked to one man, came and knocked on the door of my office. I knew something about his background, but uh, didn't know the full extent. He said, well, I just got out of jail. I said, well, I, I guess that's good. Well, I found out he hadn't really gotten out. He walked away from the work detail, and they were going to pick him up later in the week. But uh, he had been brought back by Narcan repeatedly and uh, had several children out of wedlock. And just, just about anything you can mention, he was guilty of it. I said, uh, so on what basis do you think you'd go to heaven? Well, God knows I really do have a good heart. I said, no, you don't. You're corrupt to the core. <laughs> Jesus said, our sins come from our heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But to enter into conversation with somebody, and you know, the interesting thing that I wanted to get to this point, of all the people I've talked to, in jails and prisons and in the waiting room, getting in to see people in prison or people under a variety of circumstances, I haven't yet had anybody get upset with me except one. I was speaking at a penitentiary out in Arkansas and a Muslim got upset with what I had to say and got up, slammed the door. The rest of the men said, don't pay any attention to him. He's always in a bad mood. So at any rate, uh, you might find out you're, you're a little hesitant to talk to somebody about what the Lord means to you and what, what your experience of grace is, you might find out that there's not as much resistance to it as you think. You pray for the Lord to give you the opportunity. I, I pray, Lord, lead me to those I can help and save me from those I can't. And uh, I've had some wonderful experiences with those that I felt had a positive response after we got down. In fact, one, one lady I asked that to worked at a service station not too far from our church and um, she said, I'm, I'm assigned here in this place to try, try to help people that come here for, with problems. And I said, well, good. We, we need plenty of help like that. And I said, uh, what, what kind of help do you give? Well, I tell them they need to have a good positive attitude and they ought to believe in God. I said, well, that's, that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you do. I said, by the way, in your own case, what, 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 what do you expect to be that which admits you to heaven when you die? Well, I'm just, I'm just staying at it day in and day out, working as hard as I can. I'm just doing the very best I can, and I, I feel like that'll get me in. I said, well, it won't. You won't make it on that point. You're not going to get there by your good works. I said, let me tell you, you, like all the rest of us, are a sinner. You violated God's law. And if you die in that state, you'll die and go to hell. But there is hope for sinners because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He laid down his life for guilty sinners. And it's not by works. It's not by free will. It's not you doing the best you can. It's what Jesus did. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believeth not is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. She said, thank you for telling me that. I never heard that before. 
Uh, we sometimes take for granted that everybody around us has heard the gospel. And that's not always the case. And so let us be ready to share with others the joy that we have because of what God has done in our life. And then one other thought as we look at the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 3 and verse 8 says, They fortified Jerusalem unto the broad wall. And in chapter 12 and verse 38, it speaks of the broad wall. And that made me think about the wall that God himself builds around his people. Zechariah chapter 2 verse 5 says, For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. Now you see, this is a wall that you absolutely have nothing to do with building. This, this is a wall that God builds himself. He says, I will be a wall. The cities back in those days felt protected and fortified when they had a wall to keep the enemy out. And this wall around Jerusalem is described as a broad wall. And then when we read this passage in the book of Zechariah, the Lord says, I will be a wall round about, fire to protect you. I think about the ways in which God protects his people with that great wall. There is the wall of God's power. Aren't you thankful to know that the God that you worship is a God who has all power and that he surrounds you and protects you and sustains you? This is exactly what we have to look to, is not ourselves. Romans 8.31 says, if God be for us, who can be against us? That doesn't mean you're not going to have any opposition. You'll have plenty of that, but none can successfully prevail. For as if God is for you, none can overcome, none can overpower. So you are absolutely secure because of the power of God. And then think of the wall of God's love. What amazing love. 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Isn't that a remarkable thing? That we who were rebels by nature, we who were alienated from God, did not love God, fear God, or seek God, would now be called the sons of God. What a wall. I mean, his family. I'm kept secure by his power, by his love. And then the immutability of God, that God doesn't change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. That's a reassuring truth, isn't it? God doesn't change. If he loves you today, he's going to love you tomorrow. If he saved you today, you're still going to be saved tomorrow. I used to be pastor of a little church down in the mountains of Kentucky years ago, and I walked down to the store down the road one morning and saw a preacher in there he said oh preacher Bradley you should have been down there at our church last night said we just had a great wonderful awakening time said there were 21 people saved and for 10 of them it was the first time <laughs> I want to tell you my friends if, if you've ever been saved there's not a second go around you're, you're saved once and for all he tells us he that hath begun a good work and you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. You're surrounded by electing love. God does not choose one today and cast him out tomorrow. He has predestinated them so that their destiny is sure. Predestinated them to be conformed to the image of his son. There's been a resurgence in recent years of many returning even in the Baptist ranks, to some of the doctrines of grace where there had been a departure from them. But while that has occurred, there's also been serious and severe opposition raised. I've been appalled at some of the things that I've been shown in recent days where people make these videos and they're on YouTube and elsewhere and just tearing into the doctrine that is taught clearly in God's word as though it is some horrible, detestable idea. Friends, man didn't invent the doctrine of predestination. It didn't come about because he thought it up. It says, whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of, the, of his son. He determined their destiny. He settled it ahead of time. 
And so if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're trusting him and nothing else. You have the evidence that he has done something in your heart. He has brought you to the end of yourself, granted you the faith. You didn't even generate that. For by grace are you saved through faith and that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we are surrounded by the faithfulness of God, the the immutability of God, and the redemptive work of Christ. Oh, what a wall that is to protect us from any danger whatever. Hebrews 1.3 says, When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. When those priests in Old Testament times offered a sacrifice, there was no chair for them to sit down and rest on. When they offered the sacrifices that were to be made today, they had others to be made tomorrow. When they offered the annual sacrifice of the Passover, they had it to do again next year. But when Jesus Christ offered himself without spot to God, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high because the work was done, the price was paid. And it's in that that we can find great comfort and joy today to know because of his redemptive work that we're secure in him. Think of the riches of his grace. Back in that passage from which we've already quoted in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, he speaks of adoption. He speaks of redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We have an inheritance that fadeth not away, is reserved in heaven for us. Everything we have here is temporary. Nothing, nothing you have, none of your possessions, none of that rubbish you've got down in the basement out of the garage is permanent. All this stuff we got here, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, is going to fade away sometime. But there's an inheritance reserved for you in heaven, and you're being kept by the power of God so that you arrive there on time to receive what God has in store for you. Surely when we understand that there is a wall that we need to be concerned about, We need to be concerned about the wall around our own life, that we don't let it crumble down and let the world influence us. We need to be concerned about the wall around the church, that we earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints and not allow error to come in. But there is this wall that you don't build. It's the wall God sets up himself around his people. And it's in that that we find the greatest hope and encouragement we could ever expect to have. I pray that the Lord will help all of us to look with courage upon this experience of Nehemiah to see that he was living in a challenging, difficult day, but enjoyed great success because his faith and trust was in the living God. May it be so with all of us. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.